1: My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I kept them in the shade, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. caution be alert you are entering a subliminal space of sound thought soul and mind a world beyond yet somehow within you a realm of boundless potential a sea of psychometrically unmeasurable profundity a concoction of chemicals to lab rats and church mice or a concert of conscious co-creative correlations to those in the know and how does one know Must one book his businessman's trip three hits and 15 to 20 minutes later you've returned an exalted one? Or could one reach such heights endogenously or organically? Ayahuasca, the heartbeat of mother nature, a plastogenic panaceic brew of psychotria viridis and banisteriopsis capi. Yet does one need to look without? For within DMT lies supposedly dormant, crevices of our cranium, or could it be elsewhere? Are we just grasping at straws when we confine our understanding to definitions of molecular renditions based on microscopic visions of the microcosmic and allow that to become God? Or is it that God left a psychofunkadelic trail of soured breadcrumbs aligned in such a way that it remained tucked away in the labyrinth jungles of the Amazon? and far away in the Andes Mountains, so that one day two sacred ingredients would be alchemically joined to produce an experience that is equal parts nirvana and inferno, a rite of passage once rarefied, now almost accepted by the mainstream, partly thanks to the pioneering work of today's guest, Dr. Rick Strassman. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Rick Strassman. I like to
2: say I got the last laugh because instead of outside fireworks, I got to generate internal fireworks. But be that as it may, I experimented with cannabis and with psychedelics in college, and this was the West Coast in the late 60s, early 70s and there was also the influx of eastern meditation techniques around that time coming into the west coast i learned about the underground use of DMT from terence and actually a terence supervised in my first DMT trip in the 80s 86 87 and we actually came up with a DMT study together i had Completed the melatonin study was kind of on a loose ends. Was interested in studying DMT, but didn't know, you know quite how, you know, to put it together. You know, so I, I spent an afternoon with Terrence. It never became that popular in the underground. It used to be called the businessman's. Because it was so short you could theoretically smoke it at lunchtime and then go back to work. Bill Burroughs didn't like it. It got a bad reputation, or a mixed reputation at best. But Xenia yeah, Terrence McKenna smoked DMT, was impressed, smoked more DMT and started speaking about it and he's quite the bard, a great tail spinner, and was responsible for the increased interest in DMT.
1: dr strassman welcome to the my family Thinks some crazy podcast rick if i could call you rick it's a pleasure to have you here and for folks who may not be familiar with you you have quite a pedigree quite some work that you've been doing where did this all begin what what was your childhood like i want to i want to know a little background and 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 how you got to where you were in the 90s with with DMT cuz clearly that's what you're most well known for now but you've spent time studying a very diverse range of things so where does this story start for you
2: well i guess you know scientifically it started with my interest in fireworks and bombs when i was a kid i Liked bright colors and excitement and, you know, kind of on the edge of safety slash criminality and uh, started chemistry, started college as a chemistry major. I thought I would begin my own line of fireworks, but I was dissuaded, you know, went into medicine instead and I like to say I got the last laugh because instead of outside fireworks, I got to generate internal fireworks, but be that as it may, I experimented with cannabis and with psychedelics in college. And this was the West Coast in the late 60s, early 70s. And there was also the influx of Eastern meditation techniques around that time coming into the West Coast. And I was struck by the similarity in descriptions of the two sets of states or you know, syndromes, as it were, you know some of the descriptions of you know, psychedelic experiences resembled those that were brought on by certain kinds of meditation. So, you know, the, uh, the chemist that I was, or you know, kind of yearned to be, was you know, considering or started you know, to consider some kind of underlying chemical common denominator between those two sets of experiences. Perhaps psychedelics activated the same brain mechanisms as was the case with the psychedelic drugs. There wasn't much known at the time about melatonin or the pineal gland in humans. And once I completed my medical training and psychiatric training, was interested in you know, perhaps you know the pineal gland was you know, producing you know, some kind of a psychedelic compound which was released you know, by meditation or activated by drugs like LSD you know, so that's where i you know, began my you know, clinical research career you know, there were some you know, data, you know, suggesting, you know, back then in the early 80s that the melatonin could maybe stimulate dreams or was, you know, psychedelic in and of itself. But we established, other than you know, some endocrine and other autonomic you know, functions, you know, psychologically it was only sedating and yeah uh, you know, that's turned out to be the case, and you know there's a whole industry uh, you know built up around you know, the sedating effects of melatonin. in the meantime though, i uh, I had learned about DMT, which is naturally occurring in the human body as well. It's quite psychedelic. It had been studied before in humans you know, safely. It was relatively obscure, you know, short acting as well because I knew if I were going to be studying a you know psychedelic on a on a busy in uh, you know, a research unit you know, in a hospital. Uh, you know, the shorter the better. And so I pivoted, you know, from melatonin to DMT, spent a couple of years working out a system with the federal government to do Schedule One studies in humans. And we began you know DMT work in nineteen ninety. we also you know began some psilocybin work a few years later. We had LSD on hand but never got around to studying it. And I wrapped things up in, in 1990, just, you know, practiced, you know, everyday psychiatry for the next, you know, 13 years and wrote the Spirit Molecule, you know, co-produced the movie. I've written a few books, you know, since then. In my new book which came out a couple of months ago. It's called The Psychedelic Handbook, which is, you know, like a little you know, textbook of, you know, psychedelics. And it, it was released a couple of months back. It's been doing well.
1: Yeah, I... I gotta say, I have a copy. It's extremely well put together, and I think it's a great it's a great addition for someone who thinks they're experienced, and obviously a great way for somebody who maybe is interested in psychedelics to to learn from a, a reputable source and, and maybe not be led astray because you don't. You don't do the the typical what we see in the psychedelic realm uh, of encouraging, 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 and then uh, dissuading. You're sort of dissuading and encouraging equally. So I, I think it's a it's a well balanced book and it's a great handbook to give to someone who who's interested and in, you know it, it could be sort of a a, a tricky subject. And I want to go back to something you just said a moment ago, which is you approached or maybe they approached you, but Somehow you you got to working with the federal government to study these molecules. How does that happen? I mean, it, you go from legal Schedule One molecules, you know, substances that are considered terrible and and danger to the public. Uh, how do you go about, you know, getting their help on this?
2: Well, yeah, very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one obstacle after the other. You know, when MDMA was first becoming popular in the early 1980s, I moved out to UNM in 80, well, near you know, the University of, Mexico, of New Mexico in you know, 1984, and, you know, discovered MDMA. You know, there were some, you know, psychiatrists and you know, psychotherapists that were studying it underground, using it for therapy, you know, self-exploration. And I thought, well, I will try to get a you know, permit to give MDMA you know, to normal volunteers. You know, so I put together a, um, a protocol in 85, 86 or so, you know, submitted it to the FDA, and they just said, no way. It's, it's you know neurotoxic. You can't give it safely. And I learned my lesson. You need to be you know, circumspect when you start to want to give you know so-called you know dangerous you know drugs to people you know so i put the mdma study to bed and then a few years later you know i decided you know to see about you know getting permission to study dmt you know thankfully you know there was a new division at fda which was formed to expedite the approval of hiv drugs back then and you know for whatever reason your psychedelics you know came under the purview of that new committee you know that new division And, you know, they were, you know, much more open-minded, a lot more, you know, flexible. You know, they wanted to see research done as opposed to, you know, wanting, you know, to see research, you know, not done. Even so, though, it took me a year to, you know, find a sympathetic physician in that division. And even after that, it was, you know, one more year of, you know, negotiations, you know, At the same time, you know, there was the whole thing about, you know, schedule one, which was determined by the DEA, you know, so one of the major stumbling blocks was to get the FDA and the DEA to interact, they were used to just, you know, working in their own bubbles, if you wanted to study schedule one, you know, compounds in lower animals. It was you know, simply the DEA and, you know, the security issues and the clearance and things, you know, where are the compounds stored? You know, for the FDA, you know, the, the, there was also the strength of the scientific protocol, of the safety, you know, mechanisms that were in place, those kinds of things. And I also needed to find someone to make the DMT. And, you know, that you kind of was... Straddling, you know, both the you know, purview of the FDA and the DEA. Uh, you, you know, the FDA, in you know, terms of, is it a Pure drug is it sterile? Is it you know concentrated enough? You know for the DEA, you know they wanted to you know to make certain you know, that anybody that made the DMT you know was legally able to, and so that was a real pain. And you know Dave Nichols at you know, Purdue University at, at the time ultimately agreed to make the DMT with the approval of the DEA and FDA. You know so that was a you know major breakthrough as well. And, yeah, you know, so, you know, back and forth, you know, back and forth, you know, this was in, you know, the 1980s, internet wasn't really up and running all that much. And most of this stuff was taking place through phone calls and through fax machines. So, it was rather painstaking but yeah i you know, submitted the study you know to the unm you know boards in september of 1988 and we gave our first you know dose of dmt in november 1990. But, you know within a couple of years i was interested in studying psilocybin and it was a lot smoother process it took me three to six months And studying LSD took maybe, or uh, getting our hands on LSD was even
1: quicker. It only took maybe three months or so. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I think with the work you did, you really broke a lot of ground for, I mean, being only 28 years old, I've really grew up in this sort of era, but this idea that there was a, physical explanation for spiritual phenomena that it had, you know, sort of been almost for the first time somewhat tangible when we found that the pineal gland was involved in possibly some of these prophetic experiences that we've heard so much about throughout world cultures and even have firsthand accounts of people experiencing similar types of experiences in the 60s when these drugs had just sort of hit the culture like a flashbang and and you sort of pinpointed it to the pineal gland. Am I overgeneralizing there or is that accurate?
2: Well, you know, the pineal gland was of interest to me. Our study, you know, wasn't designed... You know, to look at the you know, function of the pineal gland per se, it was mostly to characterized the effects of DMT in a group of normal volunteers. And, you know, by and by, if the DMT state resembled spiritual experiences, then one could argue for a possible naturally occurring DMT in those states. And if you know, that were the case, you know, where would the DMT be coming from? And, you know, the pineal was the you know, first you know, place I looked it actually you know turns out you know that the pineal you know, may or may not make a you know, DMT, but the brain does in quite high concentrations comparable to those of normal neurotransmitters like serotonin. you know so even if you know the DMT you know turns out to not make oh no well, I mean even if the pineal gland you know, doesn't turn out to make a you know, DMT, the brain does, which I think is you know, much more interesting, much more relevant.
1: Does it seem like the melatonin is a precursor to this release of DMT? It, it gets the brain in this state to receive the DMT. Is that where the confusion was initially with melatonin being a psychedelic?
2: I'm not sure. I think uh, you know, people were giving humans melatonin and you know, then you know, measuring their responses, you know, biological ones, you know, psychological ones. I'm not sure you know where the idea you started you know that melatonin could be psychedelic you know there may have been studies in which you know people took melatonin before they went to bed and they said oh my dreams were more vivid you know so that you know may or may not be the case but still it's you know not much you know to hang your hat on in you know claiming you know that melatonin is is profoundly psychoactive you know there's one study which has yet to be, you know, duplicated. You know, they gave melatonin to a, a group of extremely depressed people. It was an inpatient study, and you know, they got you know more depressed. You maybe got psychotic, but still, you know, that study hasn't been you know, duplicated either. So, I'm not sure, you know, where the. The strong data, you know, the rigorous, uh, you know, data came from that made you know, people think that, you know, that melatonin was you know, psychoactive other than, uh, you know, just sedating. I you know, suppose it may have... You know, been in part, you know, due to wishful thinking. You know, the pineal gland's always been an object of reverence and awe and you know curiosity within you know so-called spiritual physiologies. And you know, located on you know the top of the head, and you know that's the anatomical you know location of um of elevated spiritual states. And you know people put you know two and two together, and you know and you know they thought and you know they believed you know if the pineal gland is there and you know, that's you know the subjective location of, of exalted states yeah you know, perhaps you know the pineal was mediating those states
1: right right yeah and that's really tremendous to to think that maybe we could localize it but it doesn't seem like consciousness is local to the brain so do you think we could ever you know total compartmentalize an organ as complex as the brain it seems like it, it it's more elusive than that harder to define yeah well you know that's a
2: huge question which you know i don't think we're going to be able to answer anytime soon you know one of the strengths of you know my studies was just being quite simple in the kinds of you know questions I was asking, we studied normal volunteers. You know, gave small, medium, and large doses of the drug. You know, measured biological variables, you know, psychological variables. You know we were you know pointing, you know to the continued use of you know tryptamine psychedelics in the underground. You know DMT is you know the prototype of those kinds of compounds. You know what is uh, you know, naturally occurring DMT doing in the body, perhaps it's you know, playing a role in altered states with medical relevance, like schizophrenia. You know, so our studies were, you know, quite straightforward. You know, psychopharmacology studies. You know, we were funded by the War on Drugs. You know, the National Institute on Drug Abuse. You know, so we you know, kept the you know theoretical abstract kinds of you know, questions to a minimum. Still, I was interested in those abstract uh, spiritual kinds of questions, Yeah, you know, but those were implicit as opposed to like, you know, part of my uh, you know, grant proposals.
1: Right. Now, how much of, you know, how much of the actual phenomena could you record in that setting? You know, you're dealing with very phenomenal experiences that people are having. Was there sort of difficulty there trying to apply like a traditional scientific setting to something that could possibly be so volatile, like you described, like mind fireworks? <laughs>
2: well, you know, you can study anything. You know, that's one thing thing I've discovered, you know, through my research career, if you uh, break your, your phenomena into manageable bits, you can, you can measure, you know, those manageable, you know, bits and then construct theories, you know, so we use, you know, biological, uh, factors, crin ones, which would reflect the activation of certain receptors in the brain, you know, like your know, cortisol, prolactin, endorphins, those kinds of things. You know, serotonin-active you know, compounds, including psychedelics, will stimulate those, you know, those hormones. And you can tease apart, you know, which specific receptors are responsible you know, for which specific hormones. Yeah, you know, there wasn't a lot going on, you know, back then in terms of the, uh, you know, high-tech, you know, functional uh, you know, brain imaging like is the case now so it it was you know believed you know that you know the receptors which were mediating your hormone release were also mediating the subjective effects it it was a bit of a leap but still you know that was the state of the art at the time we also you know developed a new questionnaire to quantify the dmt state and it it was you know one of these questionnaires where you've got an idea what you want to measure you you ask a bunch of you know, questions regarding the you know, phenomena you know, that you think are contained in that overarching you know, theory, and you, you know, give the questionnaire to people and they score it, and you analyze it. You know our. You know, theoretical you know framework for studying or you know for characterizing you know this subjective experience was you know, fairly you know bare bones It wasn't you know like we were interested in a specific state to be attained like mystical state or prophetic state or eco you know, disillusioned state It was you know simply to characterize the effects of the drug was it visual, was it emotional? Was it physical? What about your sense of self and your self-control? You know, those kinds of things. In a way, it was based on the you know, kinds of standard mental status examination, interview—you know—that medical st- students learn in their, you know, third year you know, clerkship in psychiatry. It was also, you know, based on, you know, my study of you know, Buddhist psychology, which divides ongoing mental experience into a number of interrelated functions. You, you know, but the most interesting stories are the most interesting information. I mean, it came from the interviews, which occurred afterwards. You know, like I'm a extremely good note taker. Yeah, that's one you know, thing I learned as a medical student: in the ear and out the pen. And uh, when people you know would open their eyes and you know they would start to talk, I would just you know, write everything down. You know that they said, everything I said. You know the feeling in the room, anything else going on outside. And you know those are called you know, bedside notes. And you know they you know, form the body or, you know, the main body of the Spirit Molecule
1: book. And I think, you know, provide, you know, some of the most interesting material. Absolutely, yes. And I remember it had to be almost 10 years ago now that I first, uh, got a hold of your book, and I've had it since, so it's a true pleasure to to be talking to you here. I, I had no idea when I picked up your book that I'd ever get a chance to talk to you, but here we are, and I'm wondering, you know, considering the observer effect and how that might play in, do you think at all that there was the chance that these experiences could have gone differently without the, you know, set and setting that had been carefully put together for this scientific test?
2: Well, I think it, uh, I uh, could have, or it I, uh, could have more than it you know, turned out to be the case. You know, when I first started the work, I was, you know, not you know, sure about, you know, how I would react to people's stories. And, and early on, I was, you know, treating their accounts of, you know, entering into this inhabited world of light as if it was, you know, something else, you know, than them entering into an inhabited world of light. It was, you know, psychoanalytic approach would understand them as like, you know, dreams, you know, symbolic representation of conflicts or drives or things like that, which were, you know, mostly unconscious. Or you know the Buddhist approach, well especially you know the Zen Buddhist approach, which I was using, would you kind of you know discount you know the visions as inferior you know relatively speaking compared to the enlightened state of emptiness you know no content you know no feeling you know no form no consciousness those kinds of things or as an archetype you know like Jungian archetype or your brain on drugs you know simply an activation of certain parts of your brain. You know, so early on, it you know, seemed as if you know my interpreting or understanding their accounts as actually you know, something else than what you know they were actually you know living was inhibiting the free flow of you know their descriptions of the DMT effect. And at a certain point, I you know decided to engage in a you know thought experiment, you know consider or to treat. You know, their are accounts as accounts of real things, you know, like going to India is a very strange thing, it's a very strange place, you know, but it is, you know, traveling to India. It's not a dream. It isn't a Jungian archetype. It's not your brain on drugs. You know, so, you know, once I you know, settled into that approach, I think the observer effect was, you know, minimized as much as possible. You know, the setting um, was also, you know, quite bare bones. It was just have your own trip and get back to us and describe what happened. You know, you know, there are normal volunteers. We weren't interested in inducing any kind of state at all, mystical state, psychotic state, psychotherapeutic state. We just told people it starts to work quite quickly. It's intense. It's over quickly. You might be afraid that you've died, but, you know, don't worry. Nobody has. And if you you get into any trouble, you know, there's, you know, help, you know, just outside the door. So, you know, people had their own trips. You know, there wasn't music. There weren't, you know, Buddhist statues or, you know, Jesus on the cross or incense or flowers or anything. It was just, you know, hospital room, close your eyes, you know, put the head, you know, put the eye shades on and... You see you at a half hour, you know, so I think if we had you know, set things up for you know, people to have a specific kind of experience, it may have influenced you know the outcome a little more. Yeah, but as it was, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, just had their own trips, which I think is, you know, support for the notion that, you know, psychedelics are psychedelic. They're mind manifesting, or mind disclosing. They're not entheogens, they're not, you know, psychotomimetics, you know, they're not hallucinogens, they're not. You know, they're not, you know, psychodysleptics, you know, they're uh, you know, psychedelics. You know, they work on the mind of the
1: person who is taking them. Right, and and this term "mind manifesting" is it's very interesting. And after what you just said, I, I feel like I understand it a little bit more clearly. But uh, maybe for those who who aren't sure, mind manifesting, we're not implying that that something new is being manifested. What what are we implying that that there's something maybe res, residing deep within that the psychedelics sort of cr- create the the Resistance or the pressure release in order for it to flow forward is that is that what we 're suggesting
2: yeah, 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 basically, you could also define psychedelic as mind disclosing you know so i th- I think what they do ultimately, you know the content you know the specific content specific to the individual is they make more conscious m- more meaningful you know things which are uh, already more or less conscious in the in the individual's psyche you know so it, it could you know be as you're describing you know things are unconscious you know, the resistance is broken down and those things emerge into consciousness, you know, like memories, you, re, you know, new ideas, repressed, you know, feelings, or they could be a stronger conviction in the belief in certain things, you know, which have already been kind of rattling around in your mind. You know, for example, if you want to become, you know, you know more active in, you know, the ecological, you know, crisis, you know, but you're not... A certain how you take a psychedelic and you you feel even more strongly about the importance of being involved in that movement. You know, so you might decide to go to college. You, might, you you might decide to you know work for political campaigns. You know, those kinds of things. You know, which were kind of rattling around in your head, but you weren't quite sure. And you take a psychedelic and you become sure. You know, but that's you know, specific to the individual. It isn't uh, you know coming you know, yeah,
1: you know, from outer space. You're right. And maybe I'm taking sort of a primitive, or uh, primitivist approach here, but the hospital setting, you described it as bare bones. I would suggest maybe having someone in the field or in a forest would be bare bones, right? Because this is this is the set and setting of, of human beings. So mm-hmm. Have you contemplated that? I know it might not be as doable, but... Yeah, what what do you think would be different there if if it was to occur in in the forest or?
2: Well, I think it would be you know, fairly similar. You know, to be honest, you know, in the beginning, you know, the volunteers and I, you know, thought that, I you know, being you know, given an intravenous injection of you know, DMT. I'm on a research unit in a busy hospital ward was, you know, was the worst possible environment. Smells bad, sounds bad, looks bad. Yeah. But after a while, you know, people were glad to be in the hospital because, you know, there were a couple IVs in place, one for giving the drug, you know, one for taking blood samples. You know, they were, you know, they were attached you know to a cuff to measure their yeah you know on their blood pressure and you know they were laying in a hospital bed, you know, so they really had to let go completely you know they just you know had you know no control at all over you know the situation, and as a result, you know they could let go, you know they trusted me on they trusted the nurse, they trusted the drug and you know, one of the major stumbling blocks when you're smoking or injecting DMT is you can be pretty scared with the strength of the onset, you know, with the rush. It can be extremely intense and disorienting, you know, so if you're completely taken care of, if you don't, you don't really have any, you know, say in what goes on, you can really relax. You could just completely give up. You could say, okay, you know, I will just take a deep breath and we'll, you know, let's see how it goes. And I think if you're in the woods, for example, you're getting an IV injection of DMT. You you know, what if a, a fly goes up your nose or something, you know, I don't think you've got, you know, you know, quite the same, you know, control of, you know, the environment, you know, with longer acting compounds, for example, you know, the hospital, you know, was a terrible place and, um, you know, when we started the work giving psilocybin, I was very keen on you know taking it out of the hospital. You know, but our ethics board you said no. You know, but you know, but yeah, if you're going to be you know tripping for yeah, six or eight or twelve hours, if you can be in a you know place of 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 you know natural beauty or just more comfort anyway, you can move around. You've got a a lot you know more say over. What you're doing, you know where we, you know where you are, the you know things you're interacting with, you know for longer acting substances. Yeah, I think, you know that kind of environment. I'm in the hospital, strapped to the bed more or less, isn't a good idea.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I I have never done DMT, but I have I have tried other psychedelics, and yeah, I would not have enjoyed them in a hospital. But uh, yeah, it's it's really. I got to say, this book, the Psychedelic Handbook here, it's really a unique piece of work. I think, like I said, it kind of reminds me of what you could find on Arrowhead a few a few years ago. I don't know if, if there's still quality information on Arrowhead, but it, it's real something. But I'm I'm curious, cannabis was left out. Is this because cannabis was is just so covered in other places that you didn't need to waste time on it?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it would have, you know, kind of you know taken things you know too far afield, and you know there is you know plenty of of you know good information about cannabis out there. You know, there isn't that much about, you know, psychedelic cannabis. And you know, Daniel McQueen I wrote a book a couple of years ago called you know psychedelic cannabis, you know, which you know describes, you know, how to experience, you know, cannabis in a you know psychedelic manner. You know, the strains and the environment and the preparation and integration, those kinds of things. Okay. You know, but I think you know, to the extent that you know this book, you know, describes uh, you know, how to get ready. Uh, you know, how to integrate. You know how to ask for help. How to optimize your outcome and you know, minimize adverse effects. I think it's you know relevant to any your know, powerful you know, mind altering experience. I'm uh, including on cannabis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now. When it comes to salvia it seems like you you classified it differently than than the classical psychedelics what distinguishes salvia from the the classical psychedelics is this because you had more to say about salvia or or was it was it is there a specific reason
2: well, the pharmacology of you know, salvia is unique. It's a kappa opioid agonist, as opposed you know, to a you know, serotonin agonist. It's you know, kind of like you know DMT. It's extremely psychedelic. You, you smoke it, you know, most of the time if you want a you know full on salvia experience. You leave your body oftentimes. You interact with beings which you know, seem to inhabit that space. It's not been studied all that much. There have been, I think, you know, two studies or three. Yale, Harvard, and Hopkins, yeah, but there were small studies—fifteen people per study at the most, as I recall. It's you know, it is you know, kind of an outlier, you know, pharmacologically, and you know, there isn't all that much you know written about it. It's a bit dysphoric too. You know, a lot of people do not you know like the effect of of you know smoking you know pure uh A, you which is the active ingredient. It you can oftentimes produce unpleasant kind of disorienting uh, blending of the real outside objective world you know with the hallucinated world and it can be difficult you know you know to distinguish them and as a result you know they're you know therefore can be rather confusing you know disorienting even terrifying
1: yeah no and even dangerous it seems i mean there's certainly at least there used to be plenty of videos of of people experiencing salvia on youtube and and yeah i I was never interested in that until I came across Michael Harner's work where he sort of gives a different perspective on psychedelics, but that was much later in, in my years and I didn't, yeah, I've never been exposed to, to a tremendous amount of, of psychedelics, but it's curious. You write about mescaline, peyote, and San Pedro, and these are are relatively new in comparison to like ayahuasca and and maybe even psilocybin, at least in their cultural use. Certain tribes have been using them for relatively only a couple hundred years, according to certain legends. I mean, there might be things that say otherwise, like archaeological evidence that shows otherwise. But yeah, it's this pretty recent phenomena associated with the Lakota ghost Dance but have you studied these and and is there a distinction between mescaline peyote and San Pedro or are they all sort of using the same having the same effect on them so
2: mescaline is you know the you know the uh, you know, the primary alkaloid in either right. you know San Pedro or in you know, peyote got it you know peyote has got a you know very long history of use extending back to the Aztecs and uh, you know, probably earlier you know, San Pedro in Peru has been Used for thousands of years, and your mescaline was extracted from peyote in the 1890s. It was the first psychedelic extracted or kind of isolated from a plant, and it was studied somewhat in the 30s and the 40s. It was you know kind of unwieldy to use. You know there was nausea. You needed to take a big dose, and I think also you know because of its affiliation with you know peyote. It was, you know, Native American or Indian and, you know, kind of primitive, only, you know, savages would, you take mescaline. You know, so it's, you know, required the discovery of LSD in, you know, the 40s and it's incredible potency, you know, relative to mescaline, you know, before, you know, laboratory or, you know, clinical research really took off. You know, like with the case of cannabis, you know, there's the entourage effect, you know, there's the terpenes and other cannabinoids, you know, which influence, you know, the ultimate state, you know, from using cannabis. You know, with peyote and with, you know, San Pedro, there are other compounds other than, you know, which undoubtedly influence, you know, the final outcome. You know, but, you know, generally, you know, people, you know, study mescaline, it is still an obscure you know, compound relatively speaking, you know, compared to LSD, psilocybin, even DMT, and you know, ketamine, and so on. You know, there are a few people interested in studying mescaline. I think you know, there's a concern though. If mescaline attains any kind of uh, popularity, then you know, people are going to start you know, hunting for peyote and start you know, you know, to you know the countryside of your know, peyote cactus. So I live in Gallup, you know, which is you know, next to the Navajo reservation. And the Navajo do not want your know, mescaline to become popular you know, because, you know, they depend on peyote, you know, for their Native American you know, church you know, ceremonies.
1: Right. Yeah. We've had Dr. Eric Elliott on the show not too recently. And she sort of joked about how it's like a secret church within the Navajo. Like when the, when her school, she was a teacher within the Navajo reservation. and When her students found out she had been to a peyote ceremony, it was like, they were all excited, you know, like they could share this secret with her. She was cool now, but yeah, it is, is very hush hush. And I, I, respectfully so, I appreciate that it's being kept from the commercialization of these plants, because I think, you know, unfortunately, these plant medicines are being used, and, and that's why a book like the Psychedelic Handbook is so important for this younger generation that might, you know, see some irresponsible use of psychedelics and, and want to find a, a safer road to experience these things. So, wow, we have quite a lot here i mean i have a lot of notes but i know we don't have that much time i do want to ask you about the nefarious uses of psychedelics because there's a mention of that in the book and i'm curious you know what you've learned about that and 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 what the extent of that is like we've all heard about mk ultra and whatnot but how how true is any of that i mean we're were people using things like LSD and mescaline for nefarious purposes against people?
2: Well, yeah, they were you know, being you know, studied in, an, in a nefarious manner in order you know, to perhaps use them as you know, biological um, or chemical weapons. You know, so you know the Bay Area, you know the CIA, you know set up a you know, brothel. And, you know, gave, you know, the Johns, you know, psychedelics, you know, without them knowing it, you know, filmed them, that kind of thing. You know, the Army was, you know, giving a lot of, you know, psychedelics, experimental ones and, you know, well-known ones, you know, to service, you know, to recruits and, you know, seeing, you know, what would happen. You know, there were, you know, some attempts, you know, to use them as agents to... You know, create Manchurian candidates, you know, kind of, you know, train them to be assassins, those kinds of things. But it never really panned out. You really aren't going to become an assassin unless you've got that in your genes you know, in some form or another. If, if you're, you know, thoroughly, you know, peace loving, you know, from the you know, tip of your, you know, uh, you know from the top of your head to the tip of your toes, it is not going to be easy to you know turn that kind of person into a killer using lsd you know dispersal you know was a problem if there's you know wind or you know geographical things interfering with a dispersal of of aerosolized, you know, psychedelics, you know, they could, you know, blow back on, you know, the people that are issuing them, you know, there were suicides and, you know, fatal accidents, you know, psychosis, those kinds of things. And, you know, the Johns, you know, being unwittingly dosed, you know, so it was kind of shambolic. It never really panned out, you know, but, you know, but still, you know, there was interest, you know, by
1: the armed services and the spooks, you
2: know, you have to weaponize your psychedelics.
1: Yeah, it seems that way. And, and you know, we've heard of, of certain figures in the counterculture scene who may have had ties to certain groups that were, you know, complicit in spreading these things around. But it doesn't seem to have, to your point, worked towards any agenda of controlling anybody. If anything, it, it maybe laid the ground floor for this drug war that the government's made tons of money from. But but you know they they didn't really control the minds of men they they almost freed them it seems right I mean it, the counterculture is remembered for this uh, freedom and liberty and, and sort of hedonism right not not, not zombieism
2: <laughs> right and I think you know Ken Kesey in the Bay Area you know was even uh, you know one of those you know subjects and you know he certainly you know turned out to be a free spirit and you know spread the word spread psychedelics all around the country
1: right. Now Terence McKenna is another figure from that counterculture scene and and he is apparently one of the first to to try DMT at least from the western perspective was he at all an influence his his work with DMT
2: Yeah, yeah quite a bit. Well DMT you know was discovered a long time ago in the 40s and it was you know first discovered to be psychedelic in the 50s. You know it remained an obscure compound until it was and discovered in you know the tissues of mammals, in which case it you know, stimulated a lot of research. You know that was interested in in explaining you know what the you know, function of DMT could be in humans. It you know, never became that popular in the underground. It it used to be called you know the businessman's you know, because it was you know so short, you could theoretically you know smoke it at lunchtime and then go back to work. Yeah, Bill Burroughs didn't like it. Yeah, it you know got a bad reputation or a mixed reputation at best. You know, but then you McKenna smoked DMT, was impressed, smoked more DMT, and started you know speaking about it. And he's you know quite the bard, a great tale spinner, and was responsible you know for the increased interest in DMT. And I you know, learned about, you know, the underground use of DMT from Terrence. And actually, a Terrence supervised, you know, my first DMT trip in the 80s, 86, 87. And we actually, you know, came up, you know, with a DMT study together. I had, you know, completed the melatonin study, was, you know, kind of on a loose ends, was interested in studying DMT, but didn't know quite how, you know, to put it together. You know, so I... I spent an afternoon with Terence, you know, way back when. And, you know, it was, you know, we decided to go straight into the lion's den. In other words, you know, to see if we could get funding from the war on drugs to study DMT in a group of, you know, normal volunteers that were experienced with you know, psychedelics. And the first you know, group in our studies were my friends that I had you know, tripped with over the years. You know, so as opposed to you know, saying, you know, DMT is an amazingly cool drug and I want to study it in this manner, I said, you know, DMT is a bad drug and I want to study it in this manner. So you know, that was you know, the result of a lot of you know, brainstorming with Terence back then.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And, and- Going back to what you said about starting to see this place that people were going to as an actual place, or at least conceptualize it that way, what were your experiences like in that place? Did you have... Uh, quite a profound experience that first time or, or, or did it take multiple encounters?
2: No, no. The first time was pretty much like bingo. Yeah. I came out of it and said, you know, this is what I want to do or study or find out more about. Yeah. You know, it wasn't an especially unusual, you know, DMT experience, you know, relative to other people's, you know, DMT experiences. It's, you know, it's, it's an unusual state, but yeah, you know, I, smoked it, laid down, closed my eyes. And, you know, this huge waterfall of, you know, flaming colors appeared in front of me, you know, maybe like a quarter mile off, a couple hundred yards off. And these beings emerged you know, from the water, you know, from the waterfall, you know, like a half a dozen, you know, three to four feet, you know, tall kind of ET types. And they stared at me and they just you know, said over and over and over again, now do you see, now do you see, now do you see? And uh, I was pretty stunned and could just, you know, kind of, you hold my own. Yeah. And it started to fade and I came out of it and was impressed. Yeah. I figured that's what I was going to be, you know, looking at in the future. Yeah. You know, so that was, I think, you know, 1986, you know, 1987 started working on the protocol, you know, development, you know, within a year or two after that.
1: And how real is that that experience still to this day? Like have you had other experiences where those same personas appeared to you or maybe had other people who you spoke to who experienced a similar waterfall with beings emerging from it?
2: You know, not exactly you know that way. If you look at the Hebrew Bible actually, you know, there are instances of your know, beings which emerge from, You know, from flames. You know, well, like you know, Moses, burning bush. You know, the angel appears out of the you know flames of the burning bush. You know, so it's a motif. I mean, I haven't had that experience again. You know, just one experience like that. You know, for me anyway, was plenty. I mean, it kind of, you know, was it an imprint? You know, like you know, you know, Conrad Lorenz's little you know, geese, you know, that, you know, follow him around forever. It it was kind of like I was marked and that was all I
1: I really took. Mm, Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. I mean, I know this is probably a lot of like lore and, and maybe much to do about a sort of pop culture, but it does seem like there is a consistency amongst people's experiences. And the, the term that I think is most sensational is the, the terms machine elves. And I'm curious who originated that. Was that a Terrence McKenna concept that, that kind of made its way into the broader culture?
2: Yeah, I think that's the case. You know, in our studies, you know, they occurred, you know, beginning in you know 1990, and you know, Terence was not that well known, you know, back then. And You know, nobody had the kinds of machine elves that you know Terence described. You know, there were a couple of instances of robotic kinds of images or figures, you know, but not the self dribbling jeweled basketball kind of things that you know Terence would go on about
1: right yeah it's it's really it's fascinating considering you know the rich zoological, cryptozoological you know, compendium that we have from our folklore, right? There's this, this, just endless amounts of creatures from all corners of the world of different cultures. And you have to wonder, knowing what we know now about these psychedelics, if, if maybe people have been having endogenous DMT experiences and actually seeing what they call a dragon or a gnome. And, and maybe there are even places... On the physical earth that bring this sort of experience about? Have you considered maybe some sort of higher order system function that could bring about something like this? Maybe like a, a change in the magnetic sphere or the electrical nature of an environment? Like, do, have you wondered, you know, what, how these endogenous DMT experiences could be spurred?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, in the spirit molecule, I speculate about influences that. Could you know, theoretically, anyway, you know, cause an increase in naturally occurring DMT in the brain? You know, stress, sleep deprivation, you know, magnetic field, any number of things. You know, th- you know, those are kind of you know things from the bottom up. And if you believe in God and you know God communicating with us, you can even speculate about a you know top-down model you know, where God uses, you know, DMT in order, you know, to communicate with us, you know, through visions and whatnot, you know, as a result of increased levels of endogenous DMT, you know, what, you know, regulates the you know, synthesis of DMT in the mammals is completely unknown. We're still just kind of scratching the surface. And it's, it's kind of weird actually, because there's only, you know, two, People in the world studying the regulation of endogenous, you know, DMT, and they're both young, you know, guys. One guy is a postdoc, you know, John Dean at UCSD, and you know, once a grad student, University of Michigan, Nick Glenos, you know. So y- you would think there would be a lot of interest in a neurotransmitter or the potential neurotransmitter in the mammalian brain, which stimulates the same receptors that. You know, psychedelics do, but there's two people in the world. They're both, you know, 30, you know, more or less, you know, there's no uh, you know, funding out there to study endogenous DMT. It's a travesty, <laughs> you know, so I think if, you know, there's any, you know, burgeoning young investigators or mad scientists out there, you know, they should, you know, think about specializing and studying the regulation of endogenous uh, you know, DMT, you know, what's it doing? in our brains. Is it regulating sleep? Is it our dreams? Is it regulating the near death state? Is it responsible for psychosis? Uh, I mean, God only knows. And the, and the uh, fact that there's just, you know, two people looking at it is, is a bit you know difficult to understand.
1: Yeah, no, I, and I don't know if we could just chalk it up to, to, you know, the, the oppression of these things because it, we've seen sort of a renaissance of, of these ideas over the past 15 to 20 years and I know you've played a, a role in that so I I congratulate you for helping us get out of this sort of dark ages of 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 substances you know we've have especially here where I'm from in New England such a long history of using herbal medicines i mean the natives were were going on vision vision quests here and we don't even know what, what they possibly could have been using. I mean, maybe they were using simply ritual to take on you know, DMT endogenously. But this has been a, about an hour here, Dr. Strassman, and I really appreciate your time. I want to ask you one final question before we go. You mentioned this mystery here with you know the the source or the the reason with d m t are there any other big questions that are continuing to perplex you to this day anything that you're you're hoping to to see a solution to well, I
2: think we need to understand the way that you know psychedelics you know, seem to be panaceas. i I have a list if you can hold on for one
1: I can minute. hold yeah absolutely. <laughs> A panacea is defined as all healing, according to the psychedelic handbook. Dr. Strassman has stepped away from the chair, and his headphones are not on, so I don't think he's hearing me now. He's back.
2: So, like every week, maybe mm-hmm. you know, there's a new paper or new article or new scientific study or you know survey indicating that you know psychedelics help you know do this, and you know, this is my list right now.
1: It's completely
2: nuts. Yeah, and I even added, you know, two a couple days ago. Yeah, ketamine increases optimism. You know, so I think anything or any family of drugs which appears to do everything like a panacea, I don't think we can simple-mindedly, you know, say. It's because of this, it's because Mm. of that, it's because of, you know, something else. You know, there's some, there's a black box quality to what, you know, psychedelics are doing near their mechanisms of action. So I think, you know, how psychedelics appear to do everything for everyone is, you know, something that needs to be untangled.
1: Mm. Right, right, right. And you, you define the panacea as something that's all healing and then, placebo I found interesting the definition is I shall please and it's interesting because placebo seems to to be able to do almost all of those things on that list as well right in certain circumstances so
2: (laughs) yeah yeah and I think understanding how psychedelics Work will ultimately, I think help us understand the way this, you know that the mind brain complex works together to you know promote healing
1: right, right well, I really appreciate this opportunity to take your your counsel on these topics that you've spent so much time researching, and, and very few have the knowledge that you do. So thank you so much for being here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Does your family think you're crazy for playing around with all these crazy drugs, or or are they okay with it?
2: Well, my dad, you know, passed away a long time ago, you know, and you never saw me attain you know, my goal. Yeah, you know, my mom was you know proud of me, but she didn't really know what I was doing I think you know what was you know more interesting about my parents you know was was when I decided to become a psychiatrist as opposed you know to becoming an internist or a pediatrician or a neurologist or you know whatnot you know one of my you know psychiatry you know teachers on at my medical school you know during graduation came up to my parents and he said to them, You know, what do you think about your son becoming a psychiatrist? He's not going to be a real doctor, you know. That's what everybody says about, you know, psychiatrists. You know, and, you know, my parents were cool. And they said, if he wants to be a psychiatrist, more power to him. Yeah, so I think they were
1: glad. That's awesome. Yeah, I have a lot of trouble trying to explain psychedelics. Not that I spent too much time trying to explain it, but I remember one time trying to explain psychedelics to my 93-year-old grandmother, and it was quite a task. I don't, they just don't have any concepts of that, unfortunately. I don't know how old your parents were, but my grandmother's generation... Couldn't couldn't conceptualize what a psychedelic was for whatever reason. So, <laughs> Well,
2: you know, sometimes it can help, you know, break the ice by comparing them to dreams. Mm, right. Yeah. Right. You know, they're freestanding. They feel, you know, real when they're happening. They're completely weird. You know, they're completely disconnected, you know, from what's going on around you. You know, that can be a start anyway.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that would be helpful for anyone out there whose family might be skeptical or doubtful about their decision to to try psychedelics and maybe buying them a copy of the psychedelic handbook is a, is a good way to show them that it's a, a safe and, and well thought out process is there a perfect place to go for all the books or is amazon suffice
2: you can order the books you know through my website uh, com. yeah we and prefer I to do that and them it's Almost. a few dollars more than amazon but you know there's the personal touch yeah and yeah you know they're all on amazon and on kindle i think three of them are on audible now yeah
1: you know so any number of places wonderful well Again, true privilege to speak with you today. And for everyone listening, go out, get the handbook, psychedelic handbook that is, A Practical Guide to Psilocybin, LSD, Ketamine, MDMA, and DMT slash ayahuasca. Beautiful cover, very vibrant. You're not going to miss it on your shelf. And until next time, folks, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Go to hitkit.us, and you will find the number one way to ensure that you're not wasting your time rolling up your sweet, sweet herb into whatever it is, a joint, maybe a blunt like me. You roll it up and you want to make sure that when you get to where you're going, it's still in one piece, right? You can't be just putting your fine, sweet herb in your pocket. In your front pocket even? I mean, come on. What if you have to tie your shoe and whoop, there it goes. Onto the floor. Everyone sees this guy is smoking herb and he's hiding it in his front pocket. No more, folks. Get yourself a hit kit. It's the number one way to store your rolled up smokables. Whatever you're smoking. Maybe you like CBD. Maybe you like full blown sativa. Maybe you like full blown couch lock indica whatever it is you can get the swiss kit single you can get the og hit kit you can get the swiss kit double i like the swiss kit double it keeps my lighter and my two blunts of choice after i roll them safe and sound or you can get the coffer if you're a high roller the coffer you could probably fit two or three blunts in there if you really pack them in and the best part about the coffer is that you can use your lighter right there, stored away in the coffer and pop it open and just flick it and light it. Get it open. There it goes. They also got the flamethrower if you're the type of person who likes crazy lighters. There's also a tuber. I'm just looking at everything on the hit kit. Dot Us website. They are sponsoring this show, so go show them some love. Use the promo code CRAZY, and you will get 15% off your order. Uh, get the Hit Kit today. All right, and that is our conversation with the great Dr. Rick Strassman. What a guy. Very interesting conversation. Short, albeit, uh, I, I believe he didn't have uh, the most time to share, and that's alright because he mentioned possibly wanting to join us again one day uh, next year, Uh, but until then, uh, please go and check out his work. He's got the seminal book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, and his most recent book, The Psychedelic Handbook, which, uh, like I said in the outro there, or the end of our conversation, this is the outro, that it's a great book to give to those maybe who are in your family who are skeptical about your decisions to use such uh, psychedelics, right? Because it explains it in plain English, and uh, it does a pretty good job of, of coming across uh, A, scientific, but B, Uh, digestible for those who don't have a scientific background. This isn't some kind of, uh, you know, textbook that you would get in a chemistry class. It's very, very approachable, uh, thus the name handbook. So the Psychedelic Handbook, pick it up today. It's most likely going to be available uh, at your local bookstore, I hope. Uh, If not, go and call them up. Say, hey, have you got this book yet? Uh, You should get it. You should order a couple copies. That's a great way to help spread these ideas, right? If you maybe don't have a uh, a podcast yourself or, or don't talk about these things in public, you could still, you know, give your local businesses specifically your small businesses and nudge and say hey do you have this book I'm hoping to buy it and if they get enough people interested in certain subjects well then hey they'll order multiple copies enough for you to get yourself one and then hey you inspire other folks like myself who peruse the bookstores looking for uh, that synchronistic next title that'll add the information That acts as a sort of key, unlocking the next uh, phase, unlocking the next door of understanding, as we are all on our journey. And uh, yeah, not everybody's going to need the psychedelic handbook, but some may. So I don't think I've ever mentioned that on the podcast before, but I am definitely a big proponent of used bookstores. Barnes and Noble is all right. You can always give them a call and ask that they order and stock uh, a book that you'd like, and and that's cool as well. I go to Barnes & Noble every now and then. Uh, Amazon, of course, if you're uh, lazy or busy like myself, I do order books from Amazon. And and most of the times, some of the best books are on Amazon, and you'd be hard-pressed to to find uh, some of these books at your local bookstore, but you'd be surprised. Sometimes it's the inverse, where you find something at a used bookstore that isn't available on the internet or is available on the internet for an incredibly high price. And, uh, for whatever reason it's affordable at this place. So I know I'm going on a little bit of a diatribe here on used bookstores, but Hey, this was a shorter conversation with Rick Strassman. He didn't have a lot of time to share. Uh, I understand he's a hardworking man, He's lived a long life, and uh, he needs some rest. And I I forget where he said he was going, but uh, I think he's going to be spending uh, the winter relaxing somewhere nice, and uh, it's getting chillier here where I'm at, so I don't think I'll be uh, going anywhere tropical anytime soon, but definitely looking forward to spending more time here behind the desk, more time sinking into the books, researching, and finding new unique, interesting guests to have on this show. And Dr. Straspin was definitely one of those bucket list types of guests. I remember early into my uh, days of venturing into these subjects, back when I was still a part of uh, this unnameable fraternity, uh, school, college-style fraternity, Uh, greek letter style fraternity no 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 secret society type of uh fraternity but there was a level of secrecy hence why i won't name the letters uh and i remember one of my friends within this fraternity handed me a copy of dr rick strassman's dmt the spirit molecule molecule and he said hey you should check this out i think you would like it and he was right i definitely liked it uh for whatever reason, I've never gotten around to um, trying DMT since then, but it's been fascinating to consider what he wrote about. I will admit, uh, then and even still now, Dr. Strassman's work came across as a little too clinical for my interest. I'm, I was specifically then more swayed by the metaphysical uh, shamanistic interpretations of these types of experiences, and even still, too, to this day, especially after speaking with uh, Dr. Strassman himself. He he did strike me as someone who spent a lot of time uh, in a laboratory, which is interesting. Um, but then again, I am an East Coast guy, so that could just be the uh, idiosyncrasies of someone from the west coast that i'm just not familiar with uh, i have made a couple of really great friends across the country on the west coast since starting this podcast and it is interesting and unique to uh to see the cultural differences right because i'm i'm accustomed to a certain type of uh sets of personality archetypes like a like a certain niche of east coast personality archetypes and uh, those aren't true you know like those archetypes change uh, for different places they're not true for every place Uh, it's not that they're not true uh, but they're not true for every place right so each individual zone of the planet has its own biometric expression its own uh Geographical, geographical, if you will, expression, um, and that has been really cool to experience via the river of digital internet communications. So, yeah, here we are, seven minutes in, and I haven't plugged anything. Just talking about Rick Strassman. This is a deep episode. I do want to get to the plugs. Wrap it up and publish this thing for the Patreon folks so they can get it early. And everybody listening on the free feed, well, guess what? You could have got this sooner. Sign up on Patreon or Rockfin, and you will get access to every episode of the My Family Thinks of Crazy podcast early. You also get bonus content, you get Illuminati confirmed the bonus show which is only available on the patreon some episodes are available on the Rockfin, and they're all available as well on Juan on Juan's podcasts patreon Juan one-on-one Juan, my co-host has a patreon and you can find all of those shows there speaking of Juan, him and i uh, have recently collaborated amongst some others on this project that Juan named the Occultus monday it's a zine Printed material that you can hold in your hand and read writing from some of your favorite podcasters. Uh, Surprisingly, everybody went by a surname. Uh, Some some of the, the, or not surnames, pseudonames. And uh, some of the pseudonyms are unrecognizable. Uh, You wouldn't know who these people are if someone didn't tell you, which I thought was interesting. Um, So even though. My buddy uh, from the Rising from the Ashes podcast wrote an article in the Occultist Mundi podcast uh, zine, podcast zine. You can call it a podcast scene. You might not know that he goes by the nickname Gator. And you'll just have to guess <laughs> which, um, which member of the Rising from the Ashes podcast duo goes by the name Gator. Uh, He wrote an article, Juan wrote an article, Uh, I wrote an article, and Slick Dissident wrote an article. I think that's everybody. There might have been one more article, and I'm not sure. Let's read it right here, right now. I have it in front of me. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, there's actually six. So we got, oh, of course, Paranoid American. I thought he contributed. So we got Gator, Paranoid American, a.k.a. Thomas, uh, Slick Dissident, and myself, as well as Juan, the creator of this. Uh, So yeah, if you'd like to buy a copy of the Occultist Monday uh, series, the first edition is only available via Juan and the one-on-one Kofi store. Uh, For edition two... If I write an article for it, which I'm planning on writing an article for it, um, then I will sell that one on my ko store. But I figured since the first one, Juan worked really hard on it. He deserves to get all of the proceeds from it, so to speak. So I'm just going to help funnel people to him. Uh, you might be able to get it from uh, Thomas or Slick or gator as well which is the idea of this collaborative zine is that we can all print out our own copies and then sell them for a uh, even price meaning all of us will uh, charge the same even price um, and fair price i should say to whoever would like to pick up a copy and support us because you know we make a little buck here a little cha-ching from printing it out it doesn't cost that much to print them out and uh ship them off to whoever wants to have the occultist monday series in their collection Uh, i think it's a great addition to your book collection right you get some thoughts from your favorite podcasters and there are things that we've wrote about or written about in this occultist monday's series that i don't know if they've all of it's been mentioned on podcasts at least uh, my article, I, I didn't spend really more than one podcast talking about it, and you have to go find which podcast that was. Uh, I've guest appeared on a bunch of different podcasts lately. Um, the Horvay Morick radio show, um, the Enlighten Me with Ronnie Snellman. Uh, I rejoined uh, my buddy Brendan, aka Little Raven. On his podcast Barbarian Noetics um, Let's see, I was on the Cult of Conspiracies podcast With uh, Jacob and Jonathan And uh, of course I do Wednesday Ultra every Wednesday With Andreas Zertis, uh Seth from Venice Beach Dub Club um, Mr. Douglas occasionally is there Giant is occasionally there That's a fun show um, I already mentioned Illuminati Confirmed, but you guys know about Illuminati Confirmed. And uh, and then also I've been doing my show with Michael Wan, Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. And for everybody who gave up on listening uh, because of the audio quality, I get it. I understand the audio quality was quite terrible. Uh, Mike and I recently compromised. He's still going to podcast from his phone, but he's going to podcast using the Zoom app And the audio quality is 10 times better. It's a little laggy occasionally, but it's way more digestible than it was before with all the buzzing, clicking, popping, and of course dropping out. Uh, Mike, you know, he's a wild one. He's the gypsy king. So he's driving around uh, podcasting with me. Uh, So for everybody who did listen and could make it through those episodes, I really appreciate you. And, uh, yeah, if you haven't checked that show out, check it out. Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. You can find it on Michael Wan's podcast feed. It's the Susquehanna Alchemy podcast feed. That's S U S Q U E S U S Q U E H A N N A S U S Q U E H A N N A. I uh, think I got that right. You'll figure it out. It's see, I guarantee it's the only podcast using the word Susquehanna. Unless there's like some kind of Susquehanna University podcast. So, uh, anyways, what else do we got going on? Shout out to my buddy Mike Romanelli. I don't know if he listens to this show. I hope he does. He probably he might listen to this episode. Uh, but shout out to my buddy Mike Romanelli. Uh, him and I haven't done an episode of the Free Thinker Society podcast in a while, but I hope to do one soon. I don't know. I gotta get off. Uh, and running with that and hit them up and see what's going on and uh esoteric america we're recording a episode very soon new episode will be out soon so don't give up on us there uh that's all of them alt media united has a podcast coming soon called alt media united for now Uh, if you have an idea for uh, the name of the alt media united podcast uh, the idea is it's sort of like a boardroom, a board meeting with myself, my friend Al from the Forum Borealis podcast, and a podcaster that we invite on to talk about, well, podcasting. Uh, not just like uh, what it's like to be a podcaster, but you know how to podcast, creative tips, technical tips, technical troubles, things that they're dealing with, thoughts on the podcast industry, and so on and so forth. So... Maybe not uh, something that's of interest for everybody, but Al and I enjoy talking about these things, and we hope to create uh, a project that really exemplifies the mission of the free, 100% free podcast cooperative that is Alt Media United. If you haven't seen it, it's altmediaunited.com. I recently just added five more podcasts to the website. Shout out to all five Of the great new podcasters Who are now featured on the site Many more coming soon Every time I podcast with somebody They are invited And you are too If you're listening and you have a podcast Just email me At altmediaunited at gmail.com You can support me and everything I'm doing By sending us a one time donation Us being just me (laughs) It's my only job And I do a lot over here I'm trying to do a lot to support free speech, podcasting, and especially when it comes to these open-minded genres where the real breakthroughs are happening, where we're talking about the esoteric, the occult, the forgotten, the alternative. This is where the real breakthroughs are going to happen. That's my true belief. That's why I've been uh, focused on that, and that's why my family thinks I'm crazy. So please support with a one-time donation cash app paypal i know paypal's been funky and weird screw that i don't know what to say about it i'm not big enough to be affected by that um when i start getting kanye numbers on my youtube videos then i'll then i'll start worrying about uh, paypal and their terms of agreement but uh until then paypal cash app venmo uh, Rockfin, of course, is crypto-based if you like crypto. But if you have crypto and you want to donate to the show with cryptocurrency, you could just hit me up via Telegram and I will send you my crypto address. Um, I know many people are like, oh, you could just put your address in the in the um, you know description of the show and whatnot. I just don't want to put all that code, all the random numbers. It just looks ugly. Uh, so just get in touch with me. I'd rather know who's donating to me anyways and just say like hey thank you you know so uh, hit me up on telegram if you want to donate cryptocurrency because i do accept cryptocurrency of all types uh, i have all of the necessary ways to receive it i hope so yeah just send it over to me uh, if you like the show if you get something out of it i want to give a big big warm shout out to someone who recently send me sent me very kind very kind gift hold on i'm gonna look for the piece of paper uh, that has their name on it i remember their name i just don't want to get it wrong yes maurice segura i'm glad i didn't say ruben because i was thinking their name was ruben but ruben email uh instagram messaged me today but anyways shout out to maurice segura I don't know if you listened to the way, way end of this episode, brother, but if you did, thank you. Maurice recently sent me a really cool box of minerals, raw minerals, quartz, uh, Icelandic calcite, kyanite, apatite, tourmaline, smoky gray quartz, clear quartz, all sorts of fluorescent crystals. I mean, wow, this is incredible. This is one of the nicest things anyone's ever gifted me let alone for the podcast this is just in my life in general no one's ever uh gifted me crystals like this so uh, very very kind and thoughtful gift and a, a great way to support the podcast because i create uh, wire wraps so i could not only have these nice crystals for their beauty aura their energy and so on and so forth but i can share them with the world uh, using one of my creative talents, which is wire wrapping. I don't spend a lot of time doing that, but, um, I want to give a shout out to Gabby who recently picked up one of the last, uh, wire wraps that I have for sale in my store. Uh, Gabby, I'm really sorry to tell you, I can't find my crystals right now. Actually, I think they're in this drawer. You know what? They might just be in this drawer. And as I'm talking to you, I'm going to find them. Um, I don't know. I can't find them. So sorry for the delay. They're in a little neat little box somewhere. When I moved, I put them somewhere safe, but I've forgotten since where that safe spot is. So I know they're safe, but I don't know where they are. So as soon as I find those, I'm going to send you the necklace you ordered. And uh, I really appreciate it you donating to the show and picking up some art. So if you guys are interested in the art, I'm probably going to put more up soon. Uh, but yeah, send me an email or something if you if you are interested. I've been making paintings and wire wraps lately. So uh, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, nah, people don't want to buy this stuff. But then other times people see it and they're like, yeah, oh, wow, this is great. You, you should sell this somewhere. So Uh, Go and check out everything we have to offer on the Ko-Fi store. Uh, I believe Tara still has some of her paintings up there. Uh, If not, I think she still has her own Ko-Fi store up and running. Uh, You can never be too sure with her when it comes to the computer stuff. But anyways, here we are 21 minutes in to this extended outro. And probably about an hour and 30 minutes or so into this episode, taking a wild guess. I don't know how accurate it'll be uh, at this point in time in the editing stages, but uh, one last thing to plug if you've made it this far, the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue is a way you can get in touch with me. Uh, I'm not a licensed therapist or anything like that, but I can help with whatever you'd like advice on. I think I'm pretty good with that kind of stuff. Uh, Specifically podcast advice. Uh, If you're having uh, the idea to start your own podcast, maybe you have your own podcast already. I can give you some advice, help you come up with a strategy to help your podcast grow. Um, And then if you're a fan of the show and you just want to get in touch with me, uh, buy my time. Let's talk. I'm down. Maybe I can help you figure out something going on in your life, maybe you have an idea that you want to run by me, uh, you're creative type, uh, you a, have a small business of some kind, um, let me know. It's up to you. And then, uh, yeah, we got really a bunch of different people who have signed up for that with a bunch of different variety of... Um, interests that they you know paid to to discuss with me some of them were looking for my advice and others were just looking for my opinion so really anything you'd like to talk to me about is cool just know i'm recording it i will send you a copy and i'm gonna publish it on my patreon so if you're interested in listening to that there are three episodes out already uh, with three very interesting different unique people uh who all took part in a synchro wisdom dialogue that is one of the other bonus shows you can find on the patreon so here we are on the my family thinks of crazy podcast thank you for tuning into this episode with rick strassman and thank you for being here on the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast if you've listened to every episode and you're with us and you're feeling the synchronicity don't be shy get in touch with us and uh, please support the show if you can that's all for me Immerse yourself and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now. Fuck up.
0: Man, I think, I think I'm fucking peeking right now. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Huh? I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain, nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, my third eye's open and my chakra's flowing. All seven channels in my spirit's floating. Knowledge feeling deeper than the ocean, it's the eightfold path and the sacred lotus. Uh, I'm peeking, flipping through Akashic Records. My ego's decomposing like a leopard. I'm Mega Casey, going some levitation. So, with zero hesitation as I jump into the spaceship. I'm weary from thinking like a earthling. While skyfish dip and dive above the earth circling. I'm spiraling, sacred geometry. Studying my old selves like it's anthropology. Honestly, feeling like life's a comedy. As big a game as a paper run economy. I've been playing safe, but safest for the weaker hard way. I'm peeking, and tearing and every Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Hardly feeling like a person, but the vibes are perfect. Uh, I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain, but I feel it like a purpose. Wait, I'm beta testing old theta frequencies. I lay the rest, the ego, and the frequent themes. That keep me seeing life inside a box Small minds kick rocks Pandora, let's talk Uh, I might need a suture for this rift in space I might stay and see how Lucifer's fruit tastes I'm hungry for knowledge and hungry for infinite And every time I'm peeking I can see it for an instant I'm peeking through the curtain at the crowd Sheeps in their seats and the wolves on the prowl. Zeitgeist, spirit form, walking through the aisles. Consumerism living in their vacant smiles. Uh, Now I'm peeking through the curtain at the sky. I ain't even got to try gaining wisdom on the fly. I'm touching base with things I can't explain. Gods without names on a different plane. Wait, I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect. Uh. I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain. Cells out of service can't reach me on the circuit. Uh. I'm peeking through the curtain. Nothing is for certain but I feel it like a purpose. Wait. I'm peeking through the curtain, hardly feeling like a person but the vibes are perfect Uh, i'm peeking through the curtain nothing is for certain but i feel it like a purpose wait